The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Are you looking for a smile today? I hope you are, because the topic of this episode is nothing short of delightful. I had a conversation with Matt Hayes, the president and CEO of the Museum of Flight, to talk about his favorite artifact. And it's not a plane or a spacecraft. It's a photo. One of those rare, timeless photos that just reaches across the centuries and feels so current and relatable, despite the fact that it's over 100 years old. So let's take a look. We have so many items in our collection, and I I don't know about you, but I get asked, you know, what's your favorite thing, or what are some of your favorite artifacts or exhibits or places? And I've heard you refer to one in spe- specifically a couple times. You want to talk a little bit about it? Sure, Sean. Thanks. The photo that that really comes to mind was introduced to me by Amy Heydrich, our, our director of collections. And when we think about some of the incredible archival material we have in our museum and the images, what comes to mind often is, is aircraft and, and kind of these overwhelming and awesome scenes. But this image is, is something entirely different. Four women sitting in a unique setting. You can see in the blurred background, tens of thousands of people in the stands. It's a photo. It's black and white from 1910. And three of the women are smiling profusely. And, and one uh, has, a, a, has a bit more a dour expression on her face. This is a photo from the Goodman Goodmanson collection, right? It is. It's first of all, besides being one of my favorite collections at the museum, it's it's certainly the greatest name I could think of. Goodman L. Goodmanson. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this the, the photo is from uh, the 1910 Los Angeles International Air Meet. It was really the second great international air meet in the history of aviation. And Goodman was born in Norway uh, back in 1886. He came to California shortly thereafter and was a photographer with the Los Angeles Examiner at the time. And he took this collection about 63 black and white photographs of one of the most incredible events, probably in the history of the West Coast. This is 1910, so this is only a few years after the Wright's flight. So aviation is still very much in its infancy, but how was aviation perceived at the time? What were people thinking? I mean, this was a huge turnout for an event, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, the first air meet really hadn't happened until 1909 uh, out in France. It was all the great aviators. And you have to remember at the time, the Wrights, the Wright brothers flew first flew in 03 and then went relatively quiet to the public for a long time. And Europe started to catch up. And so most of the great pilots and inventors at that point were European. But a young upstart named Glenn Curtis came from upstate New York and became one of the superstars of that that air meet in France. And so the next one happens uh, a few months later with almost no planning time in, in LA. And you got to remember this, ironically, is before air travel. So you got to pack up all your airplanes and ship them over to wherever you're going from all over the world. And between August and January, they, they head over to LA. Over an 11-day period in January, over a quarter of a million people came down for this wonderful event. 
There was a huge parade that kicked it off with a theme of ox carts to airplanes. Local schools were closed. They had city and industry days. All kinds of luminaries of flight were there, as, as well as just crazy flying machines of all type, not just heavier than air, aircraft. There was balloons and dirigibles and plenty of crashes. And, and it, was, it was just one of those amazing sites where literally uh, probably dozens out of the hundreds of thousands had ever even seen a flying aircraft in their life. Yeah, this was so unknown. I, I think back to balloon times and the very first uh, balloon flight in the U.S., where uh, it was a Frenchman who who ballooned from, I think, Philly to New York or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he landed in a field, and this farmer had no idea what was happening. Oh. And I don't think the guy really spoke English. And, yeah, <laughs> like imagine, and that's just a balloon. I just a balloon. I say that so it sounds so <laughs> condescending, but imagine now with flying winged flying machines going around i i get excited just imagining how wondrous that must have been we we don't get to experience that now because we're so used to it yeah i i, I agree and i think the, the image that we're talking about uh, it, it encapsulates a lot of that that wonder that you're talking about because a lot of the images in the collection as you you'd expect are the aircraft or the or the dirigibles in flight they are people winning prizes and being handed the trophies. Um, but the, the ones that capture capture my attention and, and ultimately my heart are the ones of the people because that look of wonder and the fact that these people are dressed to the nines in their Sunday best, uh, coming out into this field, Dominguez Field and what now is Carson, California, that's what makes it, it special. And And it's interesting when you think about the people that came to this. We've got not just the incredible pilots, and again, the Wright brothers were again absent, but uh, Glenn Curtis again, and, and all the greats from, from Europe. But there was a young Harriet Quimby there covering the event as a journalist. And a year later, she'd become the first U.S. Women, woman pilot, um, certificate number 37. So if you're talking about the early days of aviation, here we are uh, seven years after the first flight, and we're on certificate number 37. Um and, and it's amazing how quickly it follows. A 13-year-old Jimmy Doolittle was at this event, of course, becoming one of the great air racers and military uh, minds uh, and pilots uh, all the way through World War II. A nine-year-old Florence Leotine Lowe and her grandfather Thaddeus Lowe. Now, if you don't recognize those names, the latter, as you referred to, was a, a famous Civil War balloonist for the Union Army. Uh, the former ended up becoming the famous Pancho Barnes. And uh, this is the place where she was inspired to fly. William A. Randolph Hearst was there, uh, of course, trying to hawk all his newspapers. And if that's not enough, a 26-year-old timber baron from Seattle was there, Mr. Bill Boeing, who was asking every single pilot if he could get a ride, and he didn't get one. And it would be four years later before we got his first ride. And uh, two years later, he'd be starting his own airplane company. So it, it was it, it was a lot of the public and a, and a lot of people influenced by just this one event. So this is a relatively unknown event in history. And yet, as you describe it, it's clear that this meet, you know, these four women who are looking out, they're kind of looking up in the yeah. image, yeah. which implies that they're seeing something in flight. Like they are witnessing a watershed like this is it. The Wright brothers got flight started, mm-hmm. and this is where people finally saw what had been talked about with their own eyes for years, and and their imaginations and excitement just went from there. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it is dangerous to use words like watershed or, or turning point, but 
you what you really are thinking about are, are these pilots who are the rock stars or the rock musicians or the, the movie stars of their day. Uh, this is, is splattered over the, the front pages of newspapers throughout the country and the world. One of the reasons getting back to the photo that I absolutely love this image, you're right, these, these four women, three of them are smiling. Uh, they're looking up or looking out. And what the people from L.A., when they, they bid on this, this program, didn't realize was that it was going to be the first seven days of this meet. We're going to be pretty crummy weather, <laughs> including quite a bit of rain for the Los Angeles area. And so these women have these pointed homemade newspaper hats on top of their heads as they're beaming up into the sky, looking at what's going on. I mean, it's just, it is so of its time in that they're dressed in the period uh, clothes um, yet it is so timeless because you can imagine anyone uh, being at something that was just so marvelous, yet facing the elements and uh, just having that wonderful experience in, in every full-bodied way you can imagine, from the atmosphere to the people to the noise. It's all there and it's all present. And it's like everything in, in history and in aviation and our, at our museum, because I believe it's, it's about the people that makes it fascinating. Speaking of the wardrobe, if, if people are fans of hats, these, these women have hats for days. So, And the image for those who want to see it is is the cover image of this podcast episode. But if you want to get an up close look, text the word smile to 206-487-7090. It's 206-487-7090. Text the word smile to that and you'll get a link sent back to you with this image. Now, the reason that we can get this image to you so quickly, listeners, is because it's digitized. And we've talked a lot about digital collections before on the podcast. Uh, you can go back and listen to the four-part miniseries that we did over the summer where we talked a lot about digitizing. But but that's a big push in museums, and especially here at the Museum of Flight. Why is this so important for us, Matt? Well, you know, most people, when they think of the museum, they think of the, you know, the 175 aircraft and spacecraft we have. But what is the importance of museums uh, goes so much deeper and that we're collecting the true story of aerospace and all that surrounds it. And and so being able to not only collect things and and, and save them for eternity, they're, they're not much good if uh, the public, the people whether it's researchers or, or kids doing a, a book report, aren't able to access them. And as we know, the, the lives of many things that we create as, as humankind are finite, whether it's, it's film or photographs or paper, eventually it's all going to crumble and disintegrate. And so not only does, does digitizing preserve an artifact and preserve an image or a, a film forever, uh, it also allows us to give access not to the the, the tens of people that could come to our museum and, and look at it, but instead to the to the millions of people that have access to the internet or or otherwise uh, can can look up something electronically. Uh, it the, 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 the multiplying effect of of something that is powerful as, as this image is to me can now be felt by anybody. I, I can speak as someone who's done research himself, and especially right now as we're recording this, we're still in the thick of COVID that having digital collections is, oh man, it is, it is, I can't imagine how researchers functioned. I say this as a young person who 
<laughs> I, I, I've done some in-person archive research before, but I just can't imagine. We, we, I feel so spoiled that uh, I can look at our collection or I can find stuff at museums across the country, across the world, if mm-hmm. if you know where to look and and still be able to access this stuff from the comfort of home and do work. <laughs> sure. I, you know, I, I think people take take for granted the, the, the thinking that, you know, that the images or, or famous things that are out there or historical research that people can do is, is so ubiquitous these days because we can find so much available. And, and I often underappreciate that museums like ours and others across the world often have literally unique one-of-a-kind type of situations. And if they sit covered in in, in a back room somewhere, um, then there's parts of history that that will not be told. And oftentimes, unfortunately, those those stories that haven't been told or or haven't been heard focus on on people that that you don't usually see in the halls of museums. And that means uh, people of color or people from different backgrounds, people from different nations, you know, young people. And and so. The ability to bring these these stories and and these images or the, these documents out into the public eye uh, not only preserves it but in some cases introduces it. That's a good point. The introduction, something that I've done a couple times, just because I'm weird, <laughs> is <laughs> go to the digital collection at the Museum of Flight and just see what's new. I might browse through a couple pages, and and sometimes uh, they add stuff pretty pretty regularly and. And it's sparked curiosity. Uh, the the episode that either went live right before this one or two episodes previous was uh, with Matthew Burchett talking about a kite. Just one of the funkiest looking things you'll ever see. This this triangle kite designed by Alexander Graham Bell's team. And the whole reason that episode exists is because one day I was like, oh, go see what's new. And I clicked it. And there on the front page, I was met by this image that I could not explain. And I said, <laughs> I have to learn more about this. Well, I, and I think images are especially powerful, not that documents or these other things can't be just as amazing. Uh, but hopefully you can put another image in the show notes. Uh, I believe it's a Blario that's flying over a train of horses and, and, and it looks like about six, six young men are standing watching this Blario fly overhead. And again, it puts you in a place in contact that you can read about or otherwise hear about or see an exhibit. But until you actually see this confluence of the old and the new happening literally in the same frame, I don't know. For, for me, it, it, it's a powerful image that, that allows us to really understand what might have been happening in the minds of people in, in 1910 when they just simply hadn't seen one of these things before. They might not even have believed they existed. The image you're referring to is one of my favorite from the archive. I stumbled across it, I don't know, a year or so ago. And it's just like you said, you you have this black and white photo the where there's an airplane flying over people on horses and or <laughs> next to horses. And the juxtaposition is so stark. And something else that jumps out to me, I, I'm not somebody who has a ton of aviation knowledge, if that hasn't been made clear to our listeners yet, <laughs> but this is a Blario 11. Mm. So that's the 11th iteration, at least, of this aircraft. And this is 1910. So over the course of less than 10 years, fewer than 10 years, this designer has already gone through 11 iterations of this aircraft which just goes back to, again, the 
the rapidity, if that's a word, (laughs) that these engineers and designers were working at and the excitement that they must have had to just, oh, this is maybe working a little bit. Uh, Let's start over. The right's the same thing. They did did every year a new design before they Mm -hmm. landed on the right flyer. Yeah, there's there's other images from this air meet that tell the the other story about the evolution. There's a uh, one of the airplanes that was entered was by a high school teacher from the area who had built a five winged. Um, I'm not sure if that's a quin quin plane or what that is. Uh, a five winged aircraft uh, in his in his barn and brought it out to the air meet. Uh, and uh, like so many other things during those early days, it was not successful. It tried to make a takeoff run, hit a, hit a, hit a ditch and crumple, which is probably best because it, it certainly didn't look like if it was airborne one human <laughs> being on it. But that's the other side that can get captured in, in collections too, is sometimes the greatest stories aren't the ones that, that, that make the headlines. And a high school teacher bringing his five, I mean, his kids must have been enthralled. Uh, by him talking about that in class. I mean, that's that's just as an important story as well. Well, if you want to see the photo of the plane flying over the horses, you can text HORSES to 206-487-7090. That's HORSES to 206-487-7090. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your, your time today. And thank you for sharing these stories. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. In a time of, of challenge like we've all been facing during this COVID period, the things to be grateful for, whether it's your podcast, whether it's the joy we get to, to have in our daily jobs, it will overcome these challenges and the, the feelings that we have. And in the meantime, I made myself a coffee mug with that image of the, of the four women. It says, I love the Museum of Flight Archives, and uh, I'll, I'll be drinking some tea out of that right after this call. You can't help but look at this image and just smile. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. If you want to explore the entire Goodman L. Goodmanson photo album, the whole thing is digitized and can be found in our digital archives. I'll include a link in the show notes. Projects like digitizing our collection and <laughs> this this podcast are made possible by you, our donors. So thank you if you've been able to support the podcast and the Museum of Flight financially as we've been faced with the reality of keeping our doors closed to visitors to help fight COVID-19. If you'd like to become a donor, you can find a link in the show notes with more information. If learning about the behind the scenes of digitizing artifacts in a museum sounds interesting to you, I'd recommend checking out a previous episode of this podcast, our smallest episode. That's the episode title. It's called Smallest. We look at the smallest artifact in the Museum of Flight's collection, and I promise it's much smaller than you think it is. In that episode, we also have a discussion with the archivist challenge with making a digital scan of something so minuscule that you could easily mistake it for a piece of dust. The link is, of course, in the show notes. The earliest days of aviation, including some objects relating to the Los Angeles International Air Meet, 
are represented in the Museum of Flight's Red Barn, so make sure you stop in and check out those exhibits the next time you visit the museum. And make sure you visit our website, museumofflight.org, before you visit for the most up-to-date closure and opening information. If you like what you heard, please share the podcast, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, see you out there, folks. Mm -hmm.